if you would, would you grab a Bible? And if you don't have one around you, my friend Jazz will give you one. And we will be in Acts chapter 2. That's on page 592. If you get one of the blue Bibles, it's 592. Um, and so I encourage you, uh, as always, you'll hear me say this every time I get the opportunity. If you don't own one of these, if you don't own a Bible, take this. This is our gift to you. Um, and even more than that, if you know someone, I encourage you uh, to give this to someone who you might know doesn't own a Bible. And we always want to, to pass that out. So we'll be in Acts chapter 2. Um, I'm trying to, to pick up there where we left off. And I want to begin maybe with a word picture uh, that I can kind of, uh, if, if you'll do some word association with me, this is, this is where I would start. Okay, so in your own mind, um, define for yourself, get a picture for yourself, get an illustration of what this looks like for yourself when I say the word family. So just think on that for a minute, family. Right? And, if, and if you had a word association, if you had to blurt out the first word that comes to, my, to mind when you say or think family, man, I write that down. I encourage you to think about that. What's, what's the first concept? Because there's lots of words that we use to, to, to qualify family. Right? You've got immediate family. Right? Immediate family. Some words that are, that are popular in the last couple of decades. Nuclear family. Right? The nuclear family my more favorite ones, dysfunctional family, dysfunctional family, right? As you think about your family, when you start to think about like what, what emotions does that stir up, what, what mental images, what, what, what does that stir your brain to do, what, where do you start to go when you think about family? And even more importantly, when you think about family and you, if you have that picture, who, who comes to mind when you say family? Who, who are the people, who are the people that come to mind? Um, I've learned, um, even in, in you know, my own short life, sometimes dogs, pets. I, I remember when we had a, a baby, it was a dog, but we treated it the same as we treated a baby, right? Have you, seen, have you met people like that? Have you ever met people? And Man, it's, it's a big deal, right? I mean, like if their pet dies, oh my goodness. I mean, the, the, the pain associated with losing a pet is really not any different than the loss that you feel for the loss of any other family member, right? So family is, 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 is hard to define, and also, I mean, who is, in, who is in your family? Who's included in your family? Is it a biological thing? Is family only the people that have direct relationships to you biologically? Like the people you share genes and DNA with, are those the ones that are family? And so I encourage you to think about this, and, and the reason I do is because as, as we, as a group of people, dig through the entire Bible, as we look across, there is no more common picture painted for us of who God is and who we are in light of Him than family. The language of family is throughout the entire Bible, from the very, uh, very simple things that, from the very beginning, God's people refer to God and they call Him Father. Right? Even though God isn't male, right? God isn't a male. God is much as far above gender. God is too great and too big to be nailed down to a gender yet. But the, the best picture, it seems, that we see most commonly, even as Jesus refers to God, is Father. And that already makes some assumptions about our relationship to God. In fact, a familiar relationship. The language of father, the language of even sometimes mother, the, the language of brothers and sisters, they're throughout the entire Bible from beginning to end. Sometimes implicitly just saying, you know, implying, hey, God is a father and these are your brothers. But then there's other times when it basically says, look, this is the family of God that we see in the New Testament. There's no more common picture for understanding who God is and who we are than the picture of a family. So now take all those weird pictures you had of dysfunctional family. I mean, maybe that's just me. but uh, And does that hurt or help our understanding of who God is? I mean, some of you have family in the room with you, and so don't answer or show any facial expressions. But there's this picture of family throughout the Bible. And, and, and if we learn about who God is kind of by way of analogy from our own family, does that hurt or help our understanding of God? In fact, I can apply this to my own life in a very painful way. The language of the prophets throughout the Old Testament regularly speaks, and this is also in Ephesians chapter 5, of God relating to us as a man relates to his bride. 
And the prophets speak very boldly against these people because they have been unfaithful. They have run from Him like an unfaithful bride. And there's some really strong language, some non-G-rated language directed toward the people who have been an unfaithful spouse. So much so that you even see the picture of that bride, the God claiming His people, His bride for His own in Ephesians chapter 5, so that the picture of marriage ought to be the same or analogous with our picture of who Jesus is and what He's done for us. So I don't know what kind of a husband or wife you are, um, but I certainly have a hard time saying like, yeah, you know what Jesus looks like? Jesus looks like me when I'm being a husband. I don't know, but I'm not there yet. And so you can see there's this disconnect. Even though the, the best and most common picture for who God is and who we are is family, there's also this disconnect because I don't know about what your family looks like, but it doesn't always look like God. And I would never necessarily look at my family on a good Thanksgiving when we all get to the, around the table and there's that awkward silence or, or maybe somebody brings up something in the family that they shouldn't have and then now there's this weird, weird feeling. And, and I would hate to think that's what God is like. Well, there's good news. There's an ideal of God's family that's greatly disconnected from our own. But family is the starting point. Family is the launching point to our best understanding about God. And so I want to, if, if you'll join me in Acts chapter 2, I want to talk to you about the first followers of Jesus. And I want to do so with the understanding that we're talking about a family. Not a perfect family in this case, but there is something to be seen, and I hope it encourages you. If you're a part of a family, if maybe you're disconnected from your family, I hope you're encouraged to see that this is what God intends, but if you've got a family close by, I hope this encourages you and challenges you to treat them accordingly. But maybe if your family's disconnected from you and maybe you're looking for family, there's a really, really great story here, and there's good news at the end of it. So I want to begin where we left off last week in Acts chapter 2 verse 42, talking about this first group of people who called themselves follower, followers of Jesus. And the author here wants to summarize what we've seen to this point. We've seen a sermon. We've seen a miracle. We've seen the Holy Spirit give these people power. And Luke, the author here, wants to summarize that for us. Beginning in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all, as anyone had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now this is meant to be a picture. Uh, this is meant to be an illustration of what it looks like to be uh, a member of the family of God, what it looks like to be a member of a group. Member usually implying like the body parts, not members like members of a country club, but members of a body, the parts of the same body. This is what it's supposed to look like when you and I come together as body parts and join together as members of a same body of followers of Jesus. That is, church. This is what it looks like to be a family and even better, what it looks like to be a church. And I want to begin just, just right, right here. And I, I, want to, I want you to kind of give yourself, hopefully let your, let your guard down. And I want to give you permission to, to kind of confess. Um, this is like this awesome relationship between people um, who do awesome things. It says they were glad and generous and they devoted themselves to these things. And they were so kind and they were giving to one another. Can we just admit that that is probably not been our previous history with the church. Right, this is a great group of people, right? They give the shirts right off their back for one another. They help each other. Can we just confess that most people and their interaction with church doesn't look exactly like this? 
Now, if it does, if you find yourself going, oh, that's awesome, well, then I'll say that's great, but as you hang around here long enough, give us a couple of weeks or months, and you'll begin to sympathize with what I'm saying. This, this doesn't always look this way. In, in fact, the next couple of chapters, you see the challenges that face this unity, this great group of people who treat each other better than their own family. You see over the next couple of chapters ways in which outside forces begin to challenge this unity, begin to pull them apart, and begin to create rifts between them that they have to deal with by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we have to admit, you've been a part of a church. For those of you who don't have any baggage coming into this building Right from any other previous church, you're blessed, you're awesome. But as I've gotten to know some of you, let's be honest, there's, there's baggage that we bring from being a part of church that didn't look like this. Where these fail. And expecting these kinds of things lead up to just a big letdown. And while we're on that subject, and thinking about family, can we also admit that there's many ways, painfully, that our own families have let us down. Expectations that we had for family that weren't met. And if you're human, you're probably carrying some scars and some baggage, not only from the church, but even worse, from the closest members of your family who said things they shouldn't have, did things they shouldn't have. Maybe it was you. Maybe you're the guilty party who said or did something that broke the relationship with your family. Money attacked my family. Uh, We had lots of arguments, and I remember specifically a rift that was created between myself and an immediate family member because of money, and it was my fault. I should have had, did you hear those words, they had glad and generous hearts? It was a rift because I, I failed to have a glad and generous heart. I had a stingy and greedy heart, and my family paid the price. And I almost lost a brother, a blood brother, a biological brother, over the matter of $400 because I didn't have a glad and generous heart. I don't know what happens in your family. I don't know what has come uh, between you and your family. Maybe, maybe it's unmet expectations from your parents. Maybe it's unmet expectations from your siblings. Maybe it's unfair expectations from them. Uh, maybe it's people who are supposed to be encouraging, but in the end only voice their disapproval. Maybe you're from a highly critical family that is really good at pointing out flaws, but really bad at pointing out gifts and strengths. And so while we're on the subject of kind of pointing out ways in which sometimes as a church, we don't always come up and meet up to this expectation, but it might be good to think in terms of your own family not meeting their own expectations. I can summarize that for myself just to say that I remember how awkward it was to tell my wife that, hey, yeah, my uncle, yeah, he's in prison. Yeah, we're not going to be able, you're not going to be able to spend much time with that part of my family because he's in prison. I don't know if you've got any family members like that, but that's, uh, that's kind of weird. That, that's, and, and you can't, when that changes and when he gets out of prison, it still makes it hard at Thanksgiving. You can't really talk about that without pointing to all the flaws that exist. That's just one of many examples in which my family is dysfunctional. One of many examples in which my own family damages my understanding of what a good and loving and perfect father God is and what a perfect family he's created us to be as his people. But you see here that these people have a radical loyalty to something that seems to override all of our own temptation to destroy relationships. It seems to override and transcend the failures that we have with one another, and they seem to have a radical loyalty to someone or something that seems to trump all of those challenges and create an amazing community, a community of people that are generous. People, I would say, that even though they're not related, it seems like they're treating one another better than my family treats one another. And there's this picture there, and I want to maybe dig into that and see what that looks like, see where that comes from. And I want to possibly kind of dig into what that looks like and how we can pray for and begin to encourage one another in this same direction. And I encourage you, it comes from Jesus Himself. You see, uh, this has been awesome getting to to hang out with you guys in homes and and get to know one another and eat together and do some of these very things that we're going to talk about uh, the last couple of weeks. And 
This last week we got together and, and we talked about a guy by the name of Matthew. Matthew, who was the author of the gospel according to Matthew. Matthew, who was a disciple of Jesus. But he didn't start that way, did he? He started as an outcast from his own people. He started as a sinner, a person who quite literally made a living sinning against his people. It wasn't just something he did accidentally on Friday night when, when he had a two too many to drink. It was something he did Monday through Friday, nine to five, and he got paid for it. Betraying and sinning against God and sinning against his brothers was what Matthew did for a living. He made a living off of his own rebellion against God. And so when Jesus comes to him, most of the people around him expect Jesus to jump in with them and throw Matthew under the bus and say, man, Matthew, what a loser. Come on. Stop what you're doing. You kind of expect Jesus to come in like a coach and go, hey, look at all the ways you're failing. Do better. Work harder. Get up earlier. Put more effort into this. Stop doing what you're doing. And instead of doing all of those things, instead of focusing Matthew's attention on what he had done wrong, he simply says to Matthew a simple command, follow me. Would you drop what you're doing? Put it behind you and just follow me. And instead of offering Matthew anger, justice, wrath, not even a snide comment, he just says, I know, drop what you're doing and just follow me. And instead of giving him anger, he gives him a new life. A new life marked by purpose, joy. And even for the next few years that he walked and lived with Jesus and those other people who were following Jesus, family. Gave him family. And that must have been a big thing because I don't know if you've ever let your family down, but Matthew was an incredible letdown for his family. We find that he's referred to as Levi, which means his family probably expected when they named him Levi for him to be a priest. And instead of a priest, he becomes a professional sinner. I don't know what that would look like in your family, but I've done far less and been shunned by my own family. And instead of Jesus kicking Matthew to the curb and throwing him under the bus, he gives Matthew family. Family. And he gives him such a radical picture of family that it begins to blow people's minds. So if you want to, you can join me in, in Mark. Um, we're in Mark chapter, uh, chapter uh, 3. I just want to read a few verses that are right out of the words of Jesus. That's 544 if you've got one of those blue Bibles. Um, I, I encourage you to join me there just so you see I'm not making this up. But in, in Mark chapter 3, when Mark's telling the story of Jesus and in fact telling the story of, of Jesus' family, there, there's kind of this strange picture here. And, and there's kind of a strange little, uh, little section that, that Mark seems to want to draw attention to when he's talking about Jesus and even Jesus' concept of family. So if you want to read in verse 13, there's, there's a little story about Jesus calling his disciples. And while Matthew gives us a more elaborate story of, of how God called him to follow Jesus, Mark kind of summarizes things more quickly. So in verse 13, there's a summary of the calling of the disciples. In Mark chapter 3, verse 13, it says, And he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired. Some of them were outcasts, but he still desired them. And it says, they came to him. And then he appointed 12 of them, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach. And have authority to cast out even demons. And so he appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. That's who preached the sermon last chapter of Acts. Simon, whom he gave the name Peter. It says James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. So brothers, family, right? To whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, the sons of thunder. You got a picture, there were like teenage boys. I don't know if you've ever had a brother that fought, but that was the picture here. They were, they were sons of dispute. They apparently took every opportunity to fight um, that's, I, I kind of relate to that. And this, is, this gets interesting how he seems, Jesus calls those people to him. Verse 18, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, and there we go, Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, the Simon, and Simon the Zealot, and then Judas Iscariot. He called him family, even though, what does it say in verse 19? He was going to betray him. Hope that makes you feel better about your own family. And then it says that Jesus went home in verse 20. 
And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. So the crowds were following Jesus and crowding into Him so much that they couldn't even eat. Listen to verse 21. And when His, that is Jesus, when His family heard about it, they went out to seize Him. For they were saying, He is out of His mind. Don't miss that. Jesus called to Himself a group of guys whom He called brothers. Called them together and said, come, follow Me. Walk in My footsteps. I'll teach you. I'll teach you so much that you'll have amazing things to pass on. I'll show you things that are amazing that you won't be able to keep a secret. And as He did this, the people were so excited about this new concept of family that Jesus was offering that crowds began to inhibit their ability to carry on normal life. So much so that the actual, the biological, hear me say, at least in this passage, dysfunctional family of Jesus said about him, he's out of his mind. Did did you catch that? There was a phrase there literally in verse 21. It says they went out to seize him. Literally, they went to grab hold of him. They wanted to grab him, right? As if if to kind of grab him by the the collar. Hey, what, what are you doing? And Jesus was exercising a radical form of family that made his own family uncomfortable. The people began to challenge him, but if you want to skip down to me with me to verse 31. And I apologize to mothers because we're not even like but one week away from Mother's Day. Uh, and this is the, the anti-Mother's Day passage. But, but I, w- I want to encourage you, there's a, there's a reason. In verse 31 it says, And his mother... And his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and they called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. So there's a crowd of people. Jesus' mom, Mary. Jesus' brothers show up. But they can't get to Jesus because there's a crowd. And quite literally, all these people following Jesus were standing between him and his mother and his brothers. Just just picture that for a minute. People come between him and his immediate biological family. If you've got a sister-in-law or brother-in-law or in-laws, you can kind of begin to see this. There's, There's people standing in between you and the people you love. There's family, and it seems to be dysfunctional, and they're calling him out in verse 34 excuse me, verse 33, Jesus being a loving brother and son, what does he say? He answered to them, who are my mother and my brothers? Get that. Hey, um, can you go tell Jesus that his mom's here? And Jesus responds, who? What? Can you picture that? Like, hey, uh, I don't know where your family lives, but you know, Hey, what's up, bro? Um, my brother's name is Zeb. So, hey, Zeb, what's up? How you doing, man? Picture this. <laughs> Who is this? This is your brother. <laughs> Who's my brother? All right. Already, if you kind of picture that kind of conversation with you and your family, you can see that something's wrong. Something's going wrong. And if I do that and I call my brother and he says that, well, okay, now I'm going to hang up on you. And now, now we're done, okay? But you can see there's something broken. And Jesus is replacing this immediate biological family with something different. He says, who are my mother? Who are my mother and brothers? And he says in verse 34, and looking around about those who sat around him, the people following him, the people who had left everything. Sometimes these people had actually abandoned and been betrayed by their own family. Some people will have to actually lose relationships with their family to follow Jesus. I hate that it's true, but I know people who have been disowned by their own family because Jesus called them to do something. These people have been disowned probably by their own family. They're following Jesus. And Jesus looks around at them and he says to all of them, here, here these people following me. Here these people who have laid down everything to walk in my footsteps. Here, here's my mother. Here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother. He is my sister. She is my sister. She is my mother. You see, this radical concept of family is not a new thing. This radical concept of family 
is throughout the entire scripture, and it climaxes at Jesus. A man who, even though he greatly loved his mother, some of his last words from the cross before he died were to his mother. To entrust her to his friend, John. Hey, take care of my mom. So it's not that he didn't love his mom. It's not that he didn't love his brothers. In fact, one of his brothers comes back later after being silent and betraying Jesus and abandoning him like the rest of the followers. He writes a book called James, right? It's a letter from a guy named James who was a brother of Jesus, who I don't know if you know all your, all your junk about your own brother. Um, the most amazing testimony in the Bible to me is, is the one of James. Like everyone else is saying like, yeah, he's the Holy One. He's the, he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. If there's anyone who would be like, <laughs> I don't know about that, it would be the brother, right? Even if you were saying nice things about me and my brother was listening, I promise you, if you had a smile on your face, he would have like an evil grin on his face. Like, <laughs> really? Really? That's what you think. Let me tell you about my brother. Right? I don't know if that's the kind of relationship you have with any siblings. That's what I have. And it's an amazing testimony that even James here witnesses something so great that he turns his story around and he is shouting out to people, look, follow this Jesus. Drop what you're doing. Follow this Jesus. He's the real deal. I know he's my brother. I, I, I've known him for a long time. But follow him. It's a great testimony. And yet God is painting a picture of family here that is somehow greater and more powerful than even blood. Greater and more powerful than a relationship between Jesus and His mom. A greater and more powerful than even Jesus and His own blood brothers. I say blood brothers, but you say that tongue-in-cheek, of course. Jesus and His own family, He creates a rift not because he doesn't love them, but because God has called them to do something. And so when we look at this picture of a group of people who are doing something radical, they're doing something different, they're doing something that probably even caused them to abandon their own family, I want to paint a picture here that would encourage you and challenge you, not only how you treat your own family, but I want to challenge you for what Jesus is doing around us and what Jesus is giving us that's in this room. Because these people were a handful of things because they were so loyal to Jesus. So that Peter, one of these followers, one of these guys who was probably a letdown, he was a poor fisherman, preaches a sermon and he says to these people, hey, there's good news. You killed Jesus. There's good news. It's, it, it's going to hurt at first. It's, it's going to feel like guilt at first. It's going to feel like shame at first. But you're a failure. You're a massive letdown. You have hurt people. Not only that, you have let Jesus down. And for the people that Peter was talking to in this chapter, they had even somehow taken part in killing Jesus. And there's good news to those people that you have failed. And there's good news for you and to me, even though there's shame and guilt by what you and I have done. God doesn't leave us there. And so sometimes it's hard to get a picture of Christians hanging out and looking like this because the fact is that we're really a lot better at passing off guilt and blame and shame, aren't we? Like, isn't it easier to point out people's flaws? I mean, aren't, I don't know, you're staring at me right now. Aren't people's flaws so blatantly obvious to you? <laughs> I, mean, it, it, I don't know, but isn't it easy? Like, you hang around for a person just for a few minutes and get to know them. And, I, I mean, I, I, I find myself able to see gifts and blessings and friendship and their hospitality and generosity, but man, it becomes really natural to be like, what is up with that guy? Especially ones that are obvious, right? That guy smells, right? Simple things. It's distracting. Or that girl, whoa, did you see what she was wearing? It's distracting. It's e those flaws, they, they just, man, they just pop in our heads. And they're easy to find. They're the things that come to us. And God looks at you and, and me and, and He sees our flaws. And the good news of Jesus is that your flaws are no longer a secret. And I think maybe it's hard to sometimes believe in a community and be a part of a church like this because we're better at leaving each other in this little blame game and place of shame and, and criticism. And maybe that's for some of you, that's your understanding of God. God's looking at you and He's just saying, hey, you're a failure. Do better. 
or I'll have nothing to do with you. And even though that's true, even though we're broken and we failed, isn't it cool that Peter's sermon doesn't end that way? Peter's sermon, the good news of who Jesus is, is not just that Jesus outs you and outs your sin. Because after all, now that Jesus has died on the cross for my sin, I can no longer deny it, right? If Jesus died on the cross for our sin, and it's my fault that he's there, then I can no longer keep my sin a secret. And in a sense, the cross was God's way of outing every single one of us. The cross was God's way of making it to where you and I can no longer keep our failure, our sin, our rebellion from God a secret. And God made a public spectacle of your sin and mine. Not so that we would live in shame, but so that we would understand the shame and guilt we have for our sin and then realize the price that God was willing to pay to make it right. And so if you wear a cross around your neck or if you see a cross, remember, it's a reminder of what a failure you and I are. It's a reminder of what God was willing to pay for your sin, your rebellion, your failure. And you can't keep it a secret, especially in a place like this where we'll throw crosses up everywhere. People will wear them as jewelry. And I wonder if they know that that's God's way of making their sin public to the nations. Thanks be to God, He doesn't leave us in that shame. And if maybe someone has left you there, maybe when someone started by saying, hey, you're a sinner and you're a failure and you're a terrible person and you're stuck there, I have good news that Peter wants you to know about Jesus. That even those who are far off, even those who have failed, who have run from God, God means to call back to His own and He has promised to make them family. He has promised to give forgiveness for those who have fallen away, who have run away, who have betrayed and rebelled against God. And Peter wants you to know, and I want you to know, that the sermon doesn't end with you are a loser. The sermon ends with, thank God that even though I'm a loser, Jesus Christ wanted to offer me forgiveness. And that concept, that sense of family, changed these people's lives. People like probably Matthew, who were a great disappointment to his own family, were all of a sudden wrapped up in a radical loyalty to Jesus and to Jesus' people because of the amazing grace that he showed to him. Because Jesus didn't leave him in guilt, did he? He gave him a new life. So much so that these people, it says, were doing a handful of things. It says first and foremost in verse 42, because of what Jesus had done, it says they were devoted Think about that word, what that, what that word means. I, I don't usually even hear that word unless we're in a wedding. And that's because that word is typically res, it's kind of reserved for great commitment, great promises, great affection. And it says that these people had that. They devoted themselves, and they devoted themselves to four things, it says. They had four practices that they wanted to devote themselves to. Picture, picture steadfastness. Devotion is, is bigger than just an easy promise. Uh, devotion is bigger. It, it's something that I'm going to do this no matter what. And they said that no matter what, we are going to, even if we sometimes fall away, we're going to commit ourselves to first the apostles' teaching. And what, it, what was it that the, t- the apostles would have been teaching? What is it that they would be sharing? What would a guy like Matthew, who had been given a new family after his family had kicked him out, be sharing with people? It would be his story of this amazing guy named Jesus, who though even, even though he had no family to speak of because they had long since written him off, this guy named Jesus came along and instead of writing me off with the rest of my family, he gave me a new life. Imagine what the rest of them would be saying. What would they be teaching them about? Jesus? What would they be telling people about this guy that they had devoted their lives to? And those people got together and they just told that story. In fact, that's what we sing about. It's what we want. It's what I hope you leave here thinking about. That story of what Jesus has done for family is the reason why we can stay, say things boldly like, not for a moment. I mean, think about the words we're singing. Not for a moment did God even doubt his commitment to us. What about that day when I was doing all those bad things? What about that night when I made a whole series of bad decisions that I'm paying for even today? Not for a moment, not even in your weakest and worst moment was God thinking, whoo, I don't know about this one. Not for a single moment did he doubt his commitment to you. 
And so we devote ourselves to this amazing story that God, not even for a single moment, would doubt his love for us. You know, we sing songs like, if our God is for us, then nothing else, no one, no thing can be against us. I mean, hear those words. That's, that's, the, that's the story of someone who has been adopted into an amazing family, who that no matter the circumstances, we can look at them and say, I don't care what you throw at me, there's nothing that can ever be greater than what God has done for me. That's the apostles' teaching. It's the story of who Jesus is. It says they devoted themselves to fellowship. Picture of friendship with no strings attached. Fellowship is friendship that's rooted not in our own sense of mutual benefit, but it's friendship rooted in the kindness and commitment of Jesus. If I'm a friend based on my own kindness to you, well then I'm going to give you a list of, I've got a small list and a small number of strikes, right? After about strike three or strike four, we're not friends anymore. And that's, and that's the way our society is built, right? Hurt me once, right? Shame on you. You're a bad person. But if you hurt me twice, well, then somehow there's shame on me because I let you do it. And my friendship is like that. But what if we had a friendship not based on our own sense of kindness, but what if we had friendship based on Jesus' kindness? It's called fellowship. It says they also devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Something we're going to do in, in, in the near future, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper because we're going to say that just like this bread is broken into pieces and we're going to take it into our body the same way Jesus was broken publicly so that we would have new life. In the same way that we drink juice, we're saying that just like Jesus poured out his blood for the people, we want to receive that as ourselves, into ourselves. So they broke bread together. But it, there, there's kind of a nebulous picture here that not only took the Lord's Supper, celebrated communion together. Evidently, they ate together. That's awesome for a person like me. I love food. Um, I, I, I can't, I, there's like a, a spiritual connection in food. Here's why. It says they also devoted themselves to prayer. Praying for each other, praying for God's will. So they were devoted. But the second thing that we're in, in verse 43, it says that there was awe that came upon them. Awe. Literally like fear or reverence. Now, I'm guilty of this, and I confess that if everything is awesome, then nothing is awesome. And this is kind of an American phenomenon to say that everything is awesome. Well, that's awesome. That's cool. And kind of overly do it. I'm guilty of this, man. You hang around me for more than a few minutes, I will probably, that's cool. That's me. And it's, it's a waste of words. Uh, because if everything is awesome, nothing is awesome. But what if we began, and for this is a prayer uh, to redeem my own language, what if we really thought nothing is as awesome as what Jesus has done? Because it says that they were marked not only by devotion, but they were marked by awe. They were marked by being somehow in awe of what God was doing around them. And this, more than any other time that we have used the word awesome, is the most fitting for us to use that word. More than any other time when I've wasted the word awesome, it literally, I, this is the best, I, and again, this, see, I've cheapened it, but what was going on with these first people was awesome. And not awesome like french fries are awesome, because I say that too, but awesome in a way that makes everything else weak in comparison. And it says that all that who believed were together and they held things in common. And they were selling even their possessions. They were selling their belongings. Later it says that they gave it to the apostles to distribute to, for the proceeds to go to all these people. For anyone, it says in verse 45, that had need. And day by day, it says they got together. It says they were breaking bread in their homes. They received the food. And I love this. They had glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So I want to finish on that last few verses with a picture that seems to be painted of what following Jesus looks like. The first one is the biggest one that we assume, um, and it really doesn't apply to you because you're here. But one of the biggest assumptions is that you can follow Jesus by yourself. Like me and Jesus, we got this all worked out. I don't need you. Certainly don't need church, right? A bunch of hypocrites, which is hypocritical to say because 
kind of a self-defeating statement, but there's this picture here of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And for those who think that it's possible to follow Jesus by themselves, they're going to have an obstacle that is the entire New Testament. And there's a huge chunk of the Bible that will be impossible for them to apply because they believe that it's a personal, individual thing between, him and Je- between them and Jesus. And I point that out there so that you and I will, will start to notice the obstacles to this. If we find ourselves believing this, we may not say it, but we'll say things like, but you can't judge me. Well, that person can't judge me. Only God can judge me. Well, that may be true, but what if God sent his messenger to tell you what he thinks about you? Those kinds of things come out of our mind. Well, I don't need those people. I don't need them. Well, then what do you do with this whole fellowship, this friendship based on Jesus' love? You're right, you probably shouldn't be friends with those people because they're going to fail you and let you down. But, but if, if they're friends rooted in Jesus' love, then what are we saying about Jesus' love if we say, hey, I don't need those people. I don't need the church. And so as you see those things kind of poking out, maybe standing out in your own heart, I encourage you to remember that ultimately Jesus has called us to walk with him with a group of imperfect people who need just as much grace to get through the day as we do. And if you see the obstacles pointing and, you know, kind of digging into your own heart, if you ever find yourself, like, on a Sunday morning, you go, like, I don't want to go hang out with those people. Just, just take a deep breath and realize, yeah, they're, they're, we're lousy. We're lousy people. Maybe this week, when, when we're going to get together in one another's homes, and, and, and you think, oh, I don't want to go do that. I, I, I understand that. That's a, that's a great thing. I, I know where that comes from. But that's not the kind of love and friendship that Jesus means for us to have. And trust in Jesus and his love and his, uh, his faithfulness, not the faithfulness of the people around you. So as you see those obstacles digging up in your own heart, I challenge you to think about the devotion. I challenge you to think about what it would look like to be a family. It says, with glad and generous hearts, they gave away. So it's not uncommon for me to share my food with my daughters. Agreed? In fact, I'd be kind of a jerk if I was like, hey girls, um, you can't live in this house because it's mine and this is my food. Right? In fact, when I do that, I kind of revoke most of my privileges as father. And, and after, even, even, even the law agrees that that's called neglect. And it's illegal. And even the law, people who don't love or believe in Jesus believe that what that, what that symbolizes is evil and wrong. And it's not weird for me to give up and sacrifice, say, for my wife or for my daughters. But it's weird if you do it for someone who's not your family, isn't it? And that's where we have to admit, this whole picture of people selling their possessions and giving generously to people, giving their time, giving their effort to people around them, it's kind of weird. In fact, the only way for that to make sense is if you go back to Jesus' own words to his mother and brothers and say that God is doing something so great that it even trumps my loyalty to my mom and to my own family. And the only way that makes sense is if there's something overriding, there's something overarching. Only in light of Jesus' love for us does it make sense to show that kind of love to the people around us other than our family. And God, being rich in mercy, doesn't want us to live as orphans. He wants to adopt us into a family. So one of the challenges, one of the obstacles that we have might be our own sense of selfishness for what we own. Sometimes the last things we let Jesus have access to are our money and our home. And if we're not careful, we'll actually be saying that one of the greatest idols, one of the greatest things we worship more than Jesus is either our money or our home. Because we're saying, you can have everything, Jesus, except for these things. And we'll say things like, our home is our refuge. But if I read this right, Jesus is our refuge. Jesus will withstand the flood 
that your home will not. Jesus will withstand the tornado that your home will not. Jesus is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. Jesus is the one who is our refuge. And if we're not careful, we may have created some obstacles in our own hearts and our own lives that may look good. They may look like things that our society values and even promotes, like owning a home or, or like loving the people that are in your immediate family. But if we're not careful, it may actually keep us from the amazing thing that God has called us that will ultimately save people around us, and that is radical love for the people who are either homeless or without family. Because if I read this right, Jesus' purpose for these people was to invite them into their homes then I am challenged with a question. What's your home for? That place you sleep, why did God give it to you? Was it for you? Or is it possible that he's entrusted that to you to be a tool to share this crazy kind of familial love? Is it possible that we have blocked off this area and pushed people away Because I think if I read this right, people were praising God, they were having favor, and it said that the Lord added to their number. They added, God was adding to their family because they opened their homes. Are there obstacles that you may have placed in your path? Because Jesus went after the number one idol, the number one obstacle, the immediate family. It's not a bad thing. But I want to close with kind of a thought uh, that I've gotten to observe. And since we haven't had to celebrate in this way uh, yet together, I can share it with you maybe with a little bit of honesty. And I'm always grateful when you guys let me just be myself, um, even though you probably wish I would stop doing that. Um, I'm going to do it again. So I've I've pastored in various capacities for the last decade or so. And um, one of my privileges is to officiate a funeral. It's a crazy, humbling, and scary thing for someone to entrust that last moment to you. Like, you get to speak. You get to speak the last words that we'll remember. Now, I try to fill it with the words of Jesus because ultimately our hope in that moment is not in anything else around us. Our hope is in Jesus. Our hope beyond the grave is, is not in anything physical. It's in Jesus. And I, I try to do that. I try to, try to point people to that. But I also try to honor the person and maybe point to ways in which this person displayed that kind of radical love around them. And the truth is, occasionally, it's really, really hard. Really hard. And I've never shared this before, but I'll confess it to you. There have been a few funerals, more than I wish to even admit, where I have have shared the good news of Jesus' love and the way that it transforms and saves us and gives us new eternal life in him. And then I'm kind of trying to honor this person. And the best thing that I could come up with, this is the best thing, and this is very common, you'll hear this at a funeral, but I want you to see inside. I want you to look past what we conceive of as family. And I want you to see this picture of family that God means for us. And I'm left saying about these people, boy, These people really love their family. This woman, boy, she really loved her kids. Really loved her kids. And I hope that's true of all of us. This this man, he really loved his kids. But what I don't share then, and I want to share with you right now, is what I'm really saying is that that person only loved his family. That person never found the radical generosity of God in their own heart to where they could extend that love to people outside their immediate family. That person, yeah, they loved their family, but the subtext is they didn't love anyone else. They couldn't find it in their heart to see the world like Jesus sees the world and to empty empty their own families to offer their homes to other people. And I won't share it at that moment. I won't even, 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 if something tragic happens, don't do that for me, right? But I hope that, my prayer is that when we get to that point, when someone gets the opportunity to share the story of your life and mine, my prayer is not that, boy, he seemed to hate everyone else except for the people he was related to. 
Instead, I hope, I pray, man, I pray this is the case. I hope you see this. I hope I'm better at this. I hope I'm more open and generous with my own home, with money. With, I hope I'm just more generous in the days to come so that people will say, you know what? He had this really weird relationship with his real family. But it seems like there's all these other people that he treated better than even his biological family. Family seemed like a good starting point. But wow, he finished showing radical generosity to people that used to be strangers. I hope that we're devoted. I hope that there's awe. I hope what happens around us is awesome. And I believe that because of it, if we allow those things to take place, we open our homes, we open our hearts to show love to the people around us in a way that's radical. Only Jesus could give us the power to do it. If it happens, I think the truth will come to pass for us the last phrase that the Lord added many to their number. What would it look like if right now each of you picked one person? Not to just invite here on a Sunday, but what if you thought of one person that you were going to make your family? Because if we do that, I think by the end of this year, we may have to get more chairs to make room, not for just strangers who wander in here, but for people that we call brother and sister, father and mother. So let's pray. Let's ask God for him to do that. Let's thank him that he has done it for us in Jesus. Uh, God, we thank you so much that you are good. We thank you so much that you are faithful. Uh, we thank you so much that you have given us uh, a radical picture of family that I have to confess is so much bigger. It's so much greater than, than my own previous understanding of family. Um, God, I'm, I'm, I stumble over all the ways in which my family is flawed and broken and dysfunctional. I stumble over those things um, to the point that it makes it difficult even to imagine what it would look like. But I thank you so much for the people in this room who by only your grace have shown the kind of generosity and kindness to me made possible by the love shown to them in Jesus Christ. I thank you for all the ways in which the people in this room have already been kind. Man, they've been, oh, they've, they've just been so generous. Their hospitality has been amazing. I thank you for that. I, oh, God, thank you so much for the ways that you've shown your love as a family to me through these people. May it be the case that uh, we do that so much uh, that months and, and days and even years from now, we will look back and realize that so many more people have been added to our family than the ones we were born into. Uh, our family now is so much bigger than the one that, that we've been more born into, but instead the family that you've given us, that you've adopted us into by the power of your son, Jesus Christ, is greater and more amazing than we've ever known. And to lose family but to gain Jesus is a great deal. To have to make a sacrifice to get more of Jesus is actually a bargain, not a sacrifice. We thank you so much for what Jesus has done. We thank you so much that now we can look around this room and call each other family in a way that will make the rest of the world be creeped out. And it may even make us feel weird at first, but God help us to lower our guard uh, that we would call each other family. And in the end, you'll get the glory from it. People will see, my, wow, boy, how much they love each other. I wish my family was like that. This is our prayer. It can only be answered by Jesus. Amen.